tell you what, I'm going to miss that when that's gone, when we're out of the series. I want to get that track and like have it wake me up in the morning. Wouldn't that be epic alarm clock music? I think that would be pretty awesome. Well, uh, good morning again. I'm Dion, and I'm so glad to be here with you the week before Christmas, as Pua just reminded us. And in fact, to get you ready for Christmas this week, I am going to give you a, a Christmas readiness quiz of sorts. Uh, today, I want to start off by testing you, testing your knowledge of Christmas songs. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to sing a line of a Christmas song, and the words are actually going to be up here on the screen. I'm going to sing a line, and then there's going to come a blank in the lyrics. And when that blank comes, I'm going to stop singing, and uh, you're going to fill in the word that's missing. Only you can't just say the word, you have to sing it. Because it's Christmas, and that's just kind of part of the thing. So you've got to sing the words. So it's kind of like that show, uh, Don't Forget the Lyrics. Um, we're doing that here. Now, some of you are going to pretend right now, I know this, that you don't understand what I'm saying, even though it's actually really clear, <laughs> just so that you don't have to play along. But I promise you, it'll be a lot of fun. So again, I'll sing the lyric. When you see the blank, I'll stop singing. It'll be your chance to fill in the word that's missing. So we'll start with, uh, with an easy one, Silent Night, okay? So... Holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. You guys got it. Word peace. All right. Good job. Awesome. All right. Next song. A hark the herald angels sing. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth. Yeah, you got it. Peace. There you go. Peace. Uh, good job. Good job. You wanted to keep going. Sorry. Sorry about that. Okay, uh, do you hear what I hear? Said the king to the people everywhere, listen to what I say. Pray for people everywhere. Yeah, the word is peace. Good job. You guys are good. You're smart. You know your lyrics. Um, how about this one? Holy night. Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love. And his gospel is peace. You guys are unbeatable. I can't believe how good you are at this. Okay, let's try this one. Joy to the world. He rules the world with truth and grace. Grace. What? What? Why would you say peace? Right, right, peace. That, that's the thing that Christmas promises over and over again. I mean, just look at our song lyrics. It talks about peace all the time. Or, or look at our decorations, you know, things you hang on the tree, ornaments that say peace, or stocking holders on the fireplaces, or even in the cards that we write to each other on the front, the words peace are there. Even in our scriptures on Christmas. I mean, this is a well-known scripture that we'll read uh, on Christmas Eve all over the place, no matter where you're going to church. The angels appearing to the shepherds in the fields, they say, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace. To those on whom his favor rests. So Christmas promises a lot of things, but one of the things that Christmas promises most is, is the promise of peace. Christmas is supposed to be a time of peace. So why isn't it? You know, I defy you to find a moment of peace in this season. I think about my house, and uh, we, we had three Christmas programs in the last week. That means a lot of late nights, a lot of kids not getting enough sleep, a lot of parents not getting enough sleep, you know, a lot of backlogged homework and housework. And then on top of that, my parents came into town, and they visited for a little while, and then they left, and they left 
us with my six-year-old son. They gave him a drum set. And they left us with a puppy. We got a puppy. Who does that, right? There's no peace in our house right now. And you won't find peace on the way to the shopping center, to the malls, to the outlets, or wherever you go, right? I mean, those are going to be chaos. You dread those things. I mean, I do most of my shopping online for that reason. And you're not going to find peace on the roads going to those shopping centers. Is there anything crazier than Manchester Road on a weekend? No, actually, yes, there is. I'll tell you, Manchester Road during the whole month of December. That's what's worse. It's crazy out there. I mean, peace will be hard to find in your houses as as you uh, wrap presents and you vacuum up pine needles and you bake and you cook and you prepare for guests or you prepare to travel. And, and, and then here's the real kicker is, is that we, we hope that we get to Christmas and we, we hope that in Christmas we're going to spend time with our loved ones and it's going to be meaningful and deep and we're going to have times of connection. But what's the reality? The reality is the kids are going to be too loud. Someone else is going to be too bossy. Someone else is going to be too drunk. Someone else is going to be too judgy, and someone else is going to be too aloof. It's, it's not going to be this wonderful time of coming together and enjoying each other. There'll be no peace. And then just look at our world. And look at the world around us. Over 2,000 Christmases have come and gone. And have we, have we gone anywhere? Have we gotten more peaceful? Maybe we have. It sure doesn't feel like it. So when you look at this, this promise of peace... To me, it feels like it's a lot of over-promising and under-delivering. There is not a lot of peace in life to be had, period, but especially this time of year. So what are we missing? See, see, the promise of Christmas is so sure and certain. It wasn't just announced by the angels. It was actually announced hundreds of years before Jesus ever came. There were prophets who spoke about that first Christmas, and they promised that when Jesus came, when Christmas came, it would bring, bring peace for all of us. And they were so confident and sure that it makes me wonder if maybe we are missing something in our understanding of, of what peace really is and what Jesus came to bring. So today we're going we're gonna to study this a little bit deeper. We're going to look at a prophet by the name of, of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is his name, and he lived 600 years before Jesus, before that first Christmas. And Ezekiel, before we get into, his, uh, get into this text, Ezekiel was writing from the city of Babylon. He was an Israelite, he was a, he was a Hebrew person, but he was... He was um, exiled in Babylon. So he had essentially been taken, kidnapped, and deported from his homeland and brought to Babylon along with lots of other prominent Hebrew people. And meanwhile, while he's living in Babylon against his will back home, his home city is, is being plundered. And the walls are being broken down and burnt. And their temple, their place of worship is being desecrated. And so while Ezekiel is living in Babylon, all this is going on back home. But in Babylon, Ezekiel is visited by God with a series of visions and prophecies that he then writes down for the good of, of the people of Israel. And today we're going to look at a part of one of those prophecies from God that Ezekiel received. And it all relates to this promise of Christmas, this promise of peace at Christmas. And so we're going to dig in to see what, what is it that we're missing. Why is Christmas promise, or peace promised rather, why is peace promised so strongly at Christmas, but why do we miss it? So Ezekiel 34, starting at verse 22. Let's look. These are the words of God speaking through Ezekiel. He says, I will save my flock, and they will no longer be plundered. Now again, remember, Ezekiel is receiving these words from God while literally the people back in his homeland are being plundered. So God is saying, no, 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 a day is coming when this won't happen anymore. They will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep 
and another. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So God says, hey, all of this is going to change. There's going to be peace brought into the world when my servant David comes. Now there's one problem with this. Ezekiel's living 400 years after David. So what is this about? Unless God intends to do some sort of walking dead kind of thing, like David's gone. He's been gone for 400 years. Now what God is actually talking about here in this promise about David is, is, uh, is not David himself, but God is saying that there will be another leader who's coming like David. There will be a, a leader who has the heart of David, who has a desire for God like David did, who will be blessed by God like David, who will rule his people well like David, but he'll be better than David. And the Hebrew people came to understand that these promises of David, they weren't a promise of David long ago. There was another David who was coming, and they began to refer to that promised one as, as the anointed one. Because David was anointed by God, and so they referred to him as the anointed one. And in Hebrew, the way you say anointed one is you say Mashiach. Well, we, we say Messiah. That's how we say the word Mashiach. Or in Greek, you say Christos, which we pronounce as Christ. So, so in other words, all of these promises, God says, that we're about to see are going to come true when the Christ comes, when the Messiah comes into the world. He's the future David that will change everything for, for God's people. Now look a little further at, at uh, what's going to happen when that David comes, when that Messiah comes. God says, I will make a covenant of peace then with my people. So I'm going to make a, an everlasting promise of peace to them. And I will rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forest in safety. So, so you know, right away it's like, I'm taking away your enemies. You can sleep outside amongst wild animals and you won't be harmed. But then look what God says. This is... This goes a step further. He says, I will make them, my, my people, and the places surrounding my hill, a blessing. I will send down showers in season. There will be showers of blessing on them. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslaved them. They will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety, and no one will ever make them afraid. I will provide for them a land renowned for its crops, and they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. Then they will know that I, the Lord, their God, that I am with them, and that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the sovereign Lord. So again, God is giving Ezekiel this, this picture, this vision of a time when peace will reign over his people. And in some ways, you get very traditional ideas of peace here, right? God says, you will be secure. You will live in safety. You won't be plundered. The wild animals will not devour you. Right? That's the stuff we normally think of when, when someone talks about peace. We say, all right, we won't have enemies, we won't be afraid, nothing's going to go wrong around us, there'll be stillness around us. But, but did you notice that this goes a step further? God doesn't just talk about an absence of that stuff. Then God says, you'll experience abundant rainfall. 
I will shower you with blessing. He says, the trees in the ground will yield lots of crops. I will provide for you a, a land of abundance. And then most of all, God says, I will be with you. And you will be my people. And I will be your God and I will shepherd you. No longer will there be division between us, but I will come near, God says. Do you see what God is promising? It's bigger than the kind of peace that we normally think about, which is an absence of all of the bad stuff in life. The peace that God is promising here is actually the presence of good stuff. God is promising abundance. He's promising wholeness, restored relationship with him. He's promising fullness. See, see, that's the kind of peace God is talking about, a peace that is full. And, and the problem with us is that we misunderstand the kind of peace that God brought into the world through Jesus. We think that if Jesus is who he said he is, and that if God were to keep his promise, that means that, that he would make things right in the world around us, right? That, that he would put an end to violence, that he'd stop the bad guys, that he would end conflict and strife and discord. And make no mistake, when Jesus comes back, he will do all that. But until that day, until that day, this is important, until that day, the way God brings peace to the world is not by fixing all the things outside of us. The way he begins to bring peace to the world is by doing something within each of us. And it's not just a, 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 a feeling of calm, or it's not just that he soothes us, like when you're listening to some, you know, cool, jazzy Christmas music. No, no, the kind of peace that God wants to bring to us is the kind of peace that fills us. You see the difference? See, often our, our violence, our love of conflict, our destructive appetites, those things are there because there's an emptiness inside of us that's demanding to be fed. There's an unmet longing, an insecurity, a fear, or a need that drives us to those things. I, I wonder if any of you have ever heard of the blue-footed booby. <laughs> yes, that's its name. And that's what it is. It's a, it's a bird found on the island of Galapagos. And it's kind of known for these, these blue feet and also some other things. Uh, in particular, one of the other things that it's noted for besides its uh, interesting appearance and its interesting name is that uh, what it's known for is that often um, what happens on, among these birds is that when you, have a, when you have a new brood of chicks, the eldest bird will, uh, the eldest chick is known to commit um, I don't know what you call it, commit acts of violence and murder against its brothers and sisters, which is kind of weird. So these chicks are born, the eldest chick often will attack its brothers and sisters until they die. And, and so scientists have been studying these birds for a while, and everyone wants to know, so why is this? Are these birds just evil? Are they violent? Are they, are they stressed out? Like, what, what is this that makes these birds so crazy and so aggressive and so savage? And so they began to study, and, and they did some studies where they deliberately... Uh, started watching these birds, and what they noticed was, is that it was largely about food deprivation. And so they ran a study, and they, they deliberately deprived a new batch of uh, chicks of food. They, they cut back on their food supply. And what they noticed is that the eldest chick of the, of the brood, the eldest chick, when it got about 20 to 25 percent below its ideal weight, something snapped inside of it. 
a switch was flipped. Now, I know a lot of us in this room would be like, 20 to 25% below my weight, that sounds great. Um, not, not for these guys. See, what happened with that eldest one in particular is when it got to this lower level of where its ideal weight should be, it would immediately begin pecking its brothers and sisters. And then it would begin begging even louder for more food from the parents. And then when its siblings would also begin to beg for food, it would begin to intimidate its siblings or suppress their begging. It would attack them so they wouldn't beg so that it would get more food. It would totally freak out and turn on its siblings when there wasn't enough food. But then scientists, they, they would run this experiment, they would watch this happen, and before it got too far, they would restore the food supply. And here's what's amazing, that when the food supplies were restored and the elder chick was no longer malnourished, the bad behavior stopped. Everything went back to normal. Now, now isn't this interesting? Think about this for a second. Pecking, begging, and intimidation of others, all driven by deprivation. Not by character problems, not by other stuff. No, no, no. Driven by feeling empty. Now, isn't that our story too? Every one of us? See, it, there may be a few people in the world who, who do bad things because they're just pure evil. I, I'll grant you that. I think evil does exist, and that may be an explanation. But I think for most of us, the reason we do bad things, the reason we hurt ourselves or we hurt others, the reason that we bring conflict and stress and violence and drama into the world around us is because we're hurting, because we're empty. It's survival for us. And we're seeking to try to find something that can fill that emptiness. See, see that's why peace, in, in our conception of peace, is so off. That's why bringing peace to the outside, you know, hosting summits and peace talks and extending mediation and forgiveness and securing our borders and arming our people or disarming our people. That's why that stuff will never fix the core problem because it's all dealing with stuff on the outside. It never gets to the emptiness that drives our violence. The emptiness that drives the hurt that we inflict on each other. See, the only solution, the only real peace is by being restored in our deprivation. The only real solution is that we get full again so that we can stop running after all of those unholy things that we chase after when we're feeling empty. And see, this is what Jesus came to bring. His first word to his disciples after he died and rose again and he appeared to them in an upper room, you know what his first word to them was? Rest. Peace. The Hebrew word is shalom. And it's so much fuller than our idea of, of peace being an absence of conflict. It really is a word that says, wholeness be yours. Fullness be yours. See, I believe that was Jesus' way of saying, hey, what Ezekiel wrote about me 600 years ago, what the angels sang about at my birth, it is now a reality for you. See, see Jesus didn't come in, into the world to fix all of the things outside of us, to, to make all those things right. Not yet. He will someday. But so often that's our focus. Jesus, come down and fix all of this mess around me. Bring peace into my life by fixing this. But what Jesus actually came to do is not to fix this. He came to fill you. 
And that's the only way that you'll know peace. I mean, think about it for a second. Think about the things in your life that permit you no peace. Think about your past and the things that happened to you in your past. The sins committed against you or the sins that you've committed. Think about how those things devour you. See, will Jesus coming into the world and, and making things right around you, will that ever fill those places in you? No. But what Jesus came to do is, is he came to atone for those things. He came to heal those things. Or think about the, the fears of your present or your future as, as we get anxious thinking about tomorrow and what tomorrow will bring in this crazy world we're living in. See, what Jesus came to do is not to take away all of the violence around us, not yet. What Jesus came to do is to fill us with a sense of confidence and trust and hope in him that he is with us every step we take, that we are never alone. Or think about the emptiness we feel called loneliness. See, I think at, at the root of our problem is that we as people are estranged from our God. But you know what Jesus came to do? He came into the world to settle the war. He came to declare that the war is over between God and men. He declared a truce with his own life. He shed his body and blood and he gave himself as a peace offering, not just so that the war between us and God could be over, no, so that we could have relationship again with a God who, who can fill us. See, in our quest for peace, and this is true in my life, I think it's true of yours as well, we're constantly saying, Jesus, fix this stuff around me. But if you really want peace this season, there's only one way to get it, and that is to let Jesus fill you. And it's not Jesus fix this, it's Jesus fill me. And he can. He will. He's got the power to do it. He loves you. He doesn't want you to live life empty and alone anymore. See, most of us, we settle, for, we settle for a label in our faith. We're content to call ourselves Christian. And meanwhile, God says, no, I want to give you so much more than just a label or an identification. I want to give you myself. I want to give you my presence. I want to give you my companionship. I want to give you my forgiveness. I want to give you my hope. Because then you'll be full. And when you're full, then you'll know peace. See, again, it's not Jesus fixed this. It's Jesus, fill me. If you want to know peace, if you want to bring peace to the world around you, there's only one way you can do it. And that is that you let Jesus fill you. Because as long as you're empty, you will chase after unholy things. Those appetites will drive you to destruction, to violence, to drama, to chaos, to hurt. You will bring that into the world around you. But, but as Jesus begins to fill you, as he satisfies that emptiness, as he fills it with himself, then you will know peace. Not only that, then you'll truly be able to bring peace. I don't know how many of you know the story of Horatio Gates Spafford. I've got a picture of him here. Uh, he's a guy who lived in the late 1800s. Um, he was a lawyer in Chicago, a wealthy lawyer, very successful. He made a fortune doing that. And then in 1871... He took most of that fortune, and he began investing it in real estate around Chicago. Well, that sounds all fine and good. I mean, Chicago's a booming city, right? 1871 was the year of the Great Fire of Chicago. So Horatio Gates Spafford, he's, he's a Christian man, by the way, um, he invested all this money in real estate, and then in the Great Fire of Chicago, he lost most of it. 
lost his fortune, a huge blow to him. Well, he still worked as a lawyer. He still had a way to make a living. And uh, within two years later, after the Great Fire of Chicago, um, his family was ready for a holiday to Europe. They, in fact, went to go hear uh, the preacher D.L. Moody preach. There was a friend of theirs in Chicago. He was going to be in Europe. They traveled there to hear him and also to visit some of their family. And so they were planning this holiday, this trip to, to Europe. Um, but, but Gates got delayed on, on some business that he had to attend to. And rather than delay the whole family, he sent his wife and his four daughters on ahead of him to Europe. And as his wife and his four daughters crossed the Atlantic on a steamship, they were struck by another vessel. And hundreds of people died in that uh, accident, including all four of his daughters. His wife was the only member of his family to survive. And uh, history says that she eventually made it to Paris, and she sent him a telegram and the first two words were this, saved alone. And when Spafford heard that news, I mean, losing your fortune a couple of years ago, that, that must have been tough, but, but losing your family, losing all four of your children, I can't imagine. And when he received that second blow, when he got that telegram from his wife, he sat down and he began writing words. And these words have become a hymn, a great old hymn of the church that a lot of us know, a hymn called, It Is Well with my soul. Now, I don't know if you know the words of this hymn or not, but in this hymn, especially knowing the backstory, you get a picture of a man whose life was, was utter chaos, where there was, there was brokenness and heartache and pain, and yet somehow, somehow, and, and it was only because of God and the fullness that God gave to him, somehow he was able to say in the middle of that tragedy, he was able to say, it is well, it is well in my soul. I have peace, I have fullness, I have an abundance that's gonna carry me through this. See, it's possible for you to have the same. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on around you, no matter what's happened to you in the past, there is, there is, there is a possibility for you today to know true fullness to know wholeness, to know abundance. It's possible for you to know peace that only God can give. And in fact, the way I want to close this message is, I want to invite you to stand with me right now. Stand. Because we're going to sing just a, a verse in the chorus of this old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And if Horatio Gates Spafford could find fullness, if he could find peace, if he could find wholeness after facing all of the tragedy in his life, you can too. And the key is just to let Jesus fill you. So as we sing the words of this song, I invite you to sing it out. And I'm going to invite you to ask Jesus to fill you. And then just let him fill you. Let him make you whole. Let him make you well. Sing these words with me. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with 
restore. Father, 